Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 416, The Harrying of the North. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Mary, Marlene, and Charles for signing up already. Weeks in the rain and cold, marching through mud and picking through forests, had finally, in spite of Northumbria's best efforts, ended with William reaching his goal. The king had arrived in York. Or what was left of it. The assigned Norman garrison had burned down most of it earlier in the year, so if William's army was looking for a break from the cold, they weren't about to find it here. And if Sir Ralph wanted to take off his armor, there was a good chance he would find himself frozen to it. Even worse, the whole reason why William and his knights had marched to York in the dead of winter was to crush the Danish army before it could grow. But this had taken so long that by the time they reached the ruined city, the Danes were safely back on their boats in the harbor. The frustration in the Norman camp would have been the only thing that was keeping anybody warm. But William would have slowly started to get some good news. Because every rebellion in the South had collapsed. Exeter, Devon, Dorset, all of them remained under Norman control. Furthermore, the Midlands rebellions, which scared William enough that he split his force and marched to deal with them directly, were now floundering. The Welsh Mercian army could not overcome the Mott and Bailey castles, and this prevented them from being able to actually oust the Normans from, well, anywhere. And as such, they were being forced to focus their energy on denying the entrenched Norman occupation any resources, and they did that by ravaging the countryside. And this kind of tactic was no way to gain the support of the local population. If anything, it would make the Normans look like the lesser of two evils. It also left the rebel army vulnerable to counterattack. Because any time the rebel army marched onto a new target, the Norman garrisons could just sally forth from their castle and attack them from the rear. And so when William launched his counteroffensive on the Midlands, that army at Stafford was absolutely crushed. And with that, the rebellion collapsed. Edwin and Morcar, the earls turned rebels, had submitted. Even Edric the Wild appears to have submitted to William at around this point. And as for their Welsh allies, well, it looks like they just went back across the border. No sense in fighting someone else's rebellion when they were packing it in, especially when you've already had the chance to grab some choice loot in the process. So for the Welsh, it was time to go home. The trouble, though was that recent English politics were seriously destabilizing. Not just for the English, but for damn near anyone who were in contact with the English. And it had been that way for ages, as the Welsh were all too aware. As you know, one of the things that enabled Harold Godwinson to become king was that he cleared the field of his local rivals. And that had knock-on effects. 
For example, the House of Mercia had been a powerful opponent to the Godwinsons, and that threat was magnified by their close ties with the first king of all of Wales, King Gruffith ap Llywelyn. And so Harold decided to deal with the threat directly, and he tried to assassinate the Welsh king over the Christmas holiday. That attempt failed, but eventually another succeeded. And with King Gruffith's head in hand, Harold was one step closer to the throne. But as for Wales, it was thrown into chaos. Gruffith had been the first person to have fully united the region under a single local monarch. And thanks to Harold's efforts, he would also be the last. Because Harold, representing Edward the Confessor, split Wales up among the various dynasties and nobles of the region. And he probably did this not due to any sort of ethnic antagonism, but simply because of politics. If the Mercians could draw upon a united Wales for aid, then Harold's rise to power would be far more difficult. And so, in service of his personal politics, Wales had to be shattered. Now, unfortunately for just about everyone, Harold completely misjudged the situation. Wales, it turned out, was the least of his worries. And actually, he probably could have used a Welsh friend or two when the Normans showed up back by the church. But, c'est la vie. Which is a phrase we know partially due to Harold's catastrophic error. And the reason why I'm reminding you of all of this is because the way Wales was broken up matters for what came next. If you listened very closely to earlier episodes, you might remember that Prince Blethyn and his brother, Prince Rhyfwathlin, were the half-brothers of King Gruffith, because they were all sons of Angharad. But the two half-brothers had turned against Gruffith and joined Harold's war to break the Welsh king's hold on the region. And they were all in on this campaign, going so far as to swear oaths of fealty to King Edward and provide him with hostages. In exchange, once Gruffith was murdered and beheaded, they were named co-rulers of Gwyneth and Powys. You know, so long as they served under England. And they weren't the only ones who got that deal. This offer went out to a lot of Welsh nobles. I won't go through the whole list of figures installed in leadership, but if you listen to everybody was killing everybody else and no one was talking about it, you can trace some of this mess back to that era. But the point you need to know right now is that Wales had been broken up by England, and it was parted out to rival dynasties. All except one dynasty. The sons of King Gruffith, the first and only king of all of Wales. His sons... Meredith and Idwal weren't given anything, which is a bit cheeky if you ask me, because not only were they the sons of the king, they were also the stepsons of Harold f***ing Godwinson. Yeah, it turns out Harold had married Gruffith's widow in the aftermath of the assassination, because there are no heroes in history. So, as you can imagine, Gruffith's kids were a bit cheesed off by the whole disinheritance thing and probably about a few other things as well. But they couldn't exactly take this up with their new stepdad, because he was dead. And I guess if the Carmen is accurate, they could at least take some solace in the fact that someone chopped off his junk in the heat of battle, but petty revenge doesn't exactly pay the bills. Meredith and Idwal needed an income, and in the medieval era, 
That meant land. And as luck would have it, the ruler of Gwyneth was their uncle, Blethen. And he was just coming back from a failed attack on England that had culminated in an absolute drubbing at Stafford. So he and his army were probably pretty banged up right about now. And the thing about Meredith and Idwal was that at the end of the day, they were the heirs of the only king of all of Wales. And that counts for a lot. I mean, sure, not everyone liked King Gruffith, but enough people did. And some of that loyalty must have transferred to Gruffith's kids because they were able to gather an army to support their claim to the family lands. Meredith and Idwal marched upon their uncles, Blethyn and Rewathlin, and they sought to claim Gwyneth and Powys. Our information about what follows comes from the Chronicle of the Princes. And this record is limited, but we're told that the sons of Gruffith marched to the Cantref of Machain. Now, you might recall that a Cantref was a royal administrative center. The closest parallel to the English system would be the estate where the Hundred Court would meet. It was where administration, tax, legal matters, and a lot of other important matters were being handled. And something else to remember about Wales is that place names in that region are often tied to the land. And Mekine is a word that references the river that flowed through that region, specifically the River Kine. And Mekine roughly translates into English as the tracks of Kine or the fields of Kine. And the cantref of Mekine sits pretty close to the center of Powys, making it key to the governance of the region. So by attacking a location like that, the sons of Gruffith were attacking at the heart of their uncle's authority. So obviously, Prince Rewathlin could not leave the cantref in the hands of his nephews. Nor would Prince Blethyn of Gwyneth leave his brother to handle this threat alone. So they marched to Mekine together. And there, in the fields for which this region was named, the two armies each representing different branches of the same family, met. The fighting must have been close and personal, because the records suggest that nephews and uncles were right in the middle of the melee, fighting hand-to-hand and shoulder-to-shoulder. Amid the clash of shields and weapons, Prince Rewathlin was wounded and fell. And seeing his brother fall in battle might have broken the will of other leaders. But not Blethyn. This was a man that they wrote praise poems about. And they tell us that Blethyn was the kind of prince who inspired deep loyalty in his people and absolute terror in his enemies. And so Blethyn pressed on. In the fighting that followed, Idwal, son of King Gruffith, was cut down. And Meredith, seeing his fortunes turning sharply against him, broke, and he ran from the battle, taking what was left of his army with him. Blethyn remained master of the field. But for the fleeing rebel forces, the danger hadn't passed. In the flight from the battlefield, the record tells us that their only remaining leader, Meredith, son of Gruffith, died of the cold. Which is a risk you take when you decide to wage war in the middle of f***ing winter. 
And honestly, I suspect there were a shocking number of deaths from exposure during these Christmas campaigns, but they weren't considered worthy of mention by the scribes. And the only reason why this death was notable was that it claimed the life of a noble who, had he not started this whole thing in the first place, would have been able to claim a nice cozy spot next to the fire. And so, in the end, Angharad's grandsons, the sons of King Gruffith, lay dead. Her son Rivwathlin was along with them, which left her other son, Prince Blethen, as the sole ruler of Gwyneth and Powys. It was a cold and bloody day, and it had decimated that dynasty. And if Harold was still drawing breath, he probably would have smiled. But he wasn't drawing breath. Instead, it was the guy who killed him who would have been thrilled to hear of this pointless infighting. And speaking of that guy, what was he up to? Well, against all odds, William had come out on top. His policy of littering the landscape with castles and then filling them with ruthless commanders and bloodthirsty knights had blunted every rebellion against him. With the rebels locked out of outright victories, the Norman commanders were able to pick off individual armies while they were exposed out in the field, which meant that now the only imminent threat that remained was the same one that had begun this whole crisis. Northumbria. I mean, yeah, East Anglia and the Silvatici were still hanging on to a rebel's hope, and we will get to them in a bit, but for the most part, they were engaging in sporadic violence, which is certainly a threat, but isn't the same as an army that might just roll up on London and seize it. Northumbria was the only place that still had such an army standing, and it was Northumbria who had delivered William his biggest defeat in England. The Norman defeat at York had been so bad that Earl Waltheof reportedly spent the last battle of York mowing down knights like a field of dandelions. And only Gilbert of Ghent and William Mallet, with his family, had survived. Though now they were prisoners. So Northumbria was a serious threat to the conquest. In many ways, it was the only threat. And a big part of that was because they also had the support of the Danes. And the Danes, in their ships, could go pretty much anywhere and at speeds that William and Glitterhoof could only dream of. This tactical deficit was amplified by the fact that it was pretty much impossible for the Normans to cross the River Ouse on foot. Likely because the Northumbrians had been knocking down the bridges. Even worse the people of the Fens were closely allied with the Danes and they were keeping them supplied, so this could go on indefinitely. Something needed to be done. So once again, William split up his forces. He left a detachment of soldiers and commanders in York and he tasked them with rebuilding the city's defenses. A second detachment was sent to the banks of the Humber and their job was to keep an eye on the Danes who were now moored in the estuary. And a bunch of cavalry at the Humber turned out to be plenty to keep the Danes bottled up. At the end of the day, the Danes were an infantry force, and they didn't have much of an answer for what to do if the Norman knights showed up. In a straight-up fight, the Danish infantry were at a disadvantage against a comparable force of Norman knights. And it seems like they knew it. 
so the Danes stayed on their ships. And that left William free to take the remainder of his forces and march into the countryside. Even though York had been abandoned, that didn't mean that the people of Yorkshire had disappeared. The Northumbrian army was still out there. Somewhere. And if the Normans couldn't find that army, well, there were still farms and villages all throughout the Shire. Orderic, who drew from a lost portion of Poitiers for this period in history, tells us that William took his men into the countryside in search of revenge. They went from village to village, town to town, and they devastated the communities who were living there. Officially, the king claimed that he and his army were killing insurgents, that they were out there hunting rebels. But medieval nobles, even in the best of times, didn't tend to concern themselves with the personal politics of peasants. If they were unhappy with the actions of a noble, they were more than happy to take out their frustration on the poor individuals who were merely forced to work for that noble. And William had a reputation for cruelty and ruthlessness, even by medieval standards. And the Northumbrian rebels had spent the last couple years thwarting William's ambitions. And whenever the bastard was thwarted, he responded with violence, often shocking and indiscriminate violence. And from Orderick's writing, it seems William's classification of insurgency extended to literally everyone. He didn't care if they were actually involved in any plot or fight. Age, sex, politics, none of that mattered. All Northumbrians were culpable. Every last one. And remember, right from the start of this, we've been hearing about rebels taking to the woods and the wild places, while those that remained in the villages came under Norman control. Which means that in his campaign against the communities in the north, William and the Normans were striking the homes of the people in the north who were least likely to be rebels. Though this really was nothing new. William had been committing this exact type of atrocity ever since he first landed in England. And the Chronicle noted that even at the very start of this campaign, as William was marching north, he still took the time to despoil English farmlands and lay waste to English communities along the way. And so, of course, once in the north, he did the exact same thing to Northumbria. It would honestly be weird if he didn't. And turning England into hell on earth doesn't even seem to have phased him. In fact, as he and his knights rode out to exterminate communities, we're told that he made sure to send men back to Winchester so that they could retrieve his crown and other royal regalia. Because he still wanted to have a fancy party for Christmas. He wasn't going to let this policy of massacring the North get away of that. And after engaging in this slaughter for a while sometimes wearing his new party outfit, eventually, William would have received some interesting news, this time coming out of East Anglia. On the 27th or 29th of November, Abbot Brand of Peterborough died. Now, you'll recall that there are multiple records that claim that Abbot Brand was a relative of Harroward. Specifically, it's thought that Brand was Harroward's paternal uncle. You'll also recall that Brand had been granted Peterborough Abbey by Edgar the Atheling during that brief period where he is reigning as king. 
And this irritated Williams so much that he had extorted the bejesus out of Brand in order for him to retain the abbacy. So Brand was directly tied in to rebellious figures of East Anglia. He'd also supported the legitimate heir to the House of Wessex, and he also had a lot of power in a region that was increasingly becoming known for guerrilla tactics on William's allies. But now he was dead. And he had died, not in a time when William was facing rebellions all over the kingdom, but instead at a point where his power was on the rise and his enemies were turning on each other. So what did the bastard do? He twisted the knife, obviously. To replace Brand, William appointed a monk from Facomp as the new abbot of Peterborough. His name was Turold, and actually, Turold was already serving as the abbot of Malmesbury. But William was so impressed by the job he was doing at Malmesbury that he gave him Peterborough. So what about this monk was so impressive to the bastard? Well, William of Malmesbury fills us in on that detail. Apparently, Turold was famous for being a tyrant. This particular holy monk was so aggressive, greedy, and brutal that the king reportedly joked that after all he'd done to Malmesbury, he deserved somebody worthy of fighting. William wasn't subtle. The bastard had a particular philosophy of rule and he was installing nobles and clergy all throughout the kingdom who would impose that style of rule upon the local population. The desires of the English, and whether they would have rather had one of their local monks governing their abbeys, were irrelevant. More than that, from the Norman perspective, the English were a direct impediment to their own personal plans of enrichment. And as Norman desires were the only ones that mattered, they were the only ones that were implemented. Furthermore, because God put them in power, the English who were thwarting those desires were worthy of every punishment these new aristocrats could dream up. And William and his allies were dreaming up plenty. Conquest and occupation. This is what it looks like. This is always what it looks like. Meanwhile, back in the north, the campaign of terror continued. And lucky for William, now that his servants had returned from Winchester, he could carry it out while wearing his crown. But using knights to brutalize the English wasn't the only strategy that William was using to break the North. He was also seeking to isolate them. And to do that, he would need to get rid of the Danes. The trouble, though, was that he couldn't reach them. He still didn't have any real boats. And so, to deal with that, he came up with a plan. Not a new plan, just the same plan that he'd used with his knights, and also with his commanders, and with the English sheriffs, and the English clergy, and especially with the Pope. William was going to try bribery. And once again, William found himself in an incredibly lucky situation. Because King Swain had been following a pretty typical Scandinavian pattern by sending an army under the command of his half-brother, Osbjorn, to test the capabilities of England and establish a beachhead before he began his true campaign. It was a tried-and-true tactic, and it made a lot of sense. But doing so 
when the ultimate goal was reportedly to press King Swain's claim on England? Well, it had one significant flaw that could be easily exploited. Namely, if successful, Osbjorn, the guy commanding this army, wasn't going to become king. He'd just be the king's half-brother, as he already was. So, at the end of the day, all this blood, sweat, and tears would just benefit family, but not him personally. And speaking of that family relationship, don't forget, we are talking about the nobility. And the nobility have a funny way of treating family members. And by funny, I mean that modern therapists would consider it diagnostic. Imagine Mufasa sending his brother Scar out to scout a new pride rock. I mean, Scar's got to do it because Mufasa could totally kick his ass. But it's not like he's going to be all that invested in the project. Similar thing here. And so when Norman messengers arrived carrying a proposal for Osbjorn, they were welcomed on board. William, Duke of Normandy and King of England, was promising to provide the Danish fleet with provisions and allow them free reign to raid portions of the English coast. Presumably the Northumbrian and East Anglian portions. And then the king threw in a little something for Osbjorn to sweeten the deal. William promised that he would pay Osbjorn, in secret, a very large sum of money. And for this generosity, William's only request was that Osbjorn and his fleet would stop fighting against the Normans and leave England in the spring. And offering the bribe in secret tells us that William knew exactly what he was doing, as well as the inherent power problem in this deal between Osbjorn and Swain. William also seemed to know exactly what type of man he was dealing with in Osbjorn, because Osbjorn didn't hesitate. John of Worcester writes, quote, He, in his extreme greediness for lucre and to his utter disgrace, consented to the proposal, end quote. Now, it should be said that Orderic provides a very different view of these events. However, he was drawing from Poitiers' account at this point, and Poitiers has never been a reliable source on matters like this. His record has all the hallmarks of a panegyric, and so it's not a surprise that Poitiers, through Orderic, doesn't even mention the terms that were offered to the Danish fleet, nor the bribe that was offered to Osbjorn. Instead, According to Poitiers and Orderic, the reason for the Danish withdrawal is a complete mystery. But they do take time to write in detail how, in the aftermath of the withdrawal, the Danish forces were just in tatters, battered by storms, they were starving, and a bunch of them had died in shipwrecks. Because I guess the Danes just forgot how to sail or something? Totally seems legit. They then go on to wax poetic on the quality of their food, telling us that the Danes chose to eat spoiled meat rather than to go ashore into England because they were so terrified of William and the Normans. And according to William's hype man, this situation was so bad that barely any Danes made it back to Denmark. But of course, those lucky few who did spoke of how powerful William and the Normans were. And then, I assume... Everybody clapped. Now, obviously, Poitiers wasn't present for any of this. Nor were the Normans that Poitiers would have encountered. So, unless he had an inside man 
who somehow managed to survive the shipwrecks and didn't die from eating green eggs and ham, I'm guessing that this was entirely fiction. And given both records, I'm inclined to trust Worcester, especially since the incentives all line up for Osbjorn accepting a huge payout just to call it a day. There's also just no conceivable way that Poitiers would have known about spoiled meat and shipwide terror among the Danes. Conversely, while Worcester does mention that the bribe to Osbjorn was in secret, bribes rarely stay secret for long, as those who are following U.S. politics are well aware. But whether it was due to a catastrophic decline in the strategic lutefisk reserves, or whether it was due to a bribe, one thing is clear. The Danish fleet stopped assisting the rebellion, and instead took part in some light raiding on their former allies as they waited for spring. Meanwhile, in Yorkshire, without the protection of the fleet, the English were locked into a land battle against a mounted force with superior numbers. Even worse, this chivalric style of siege warfare was still new to the English, while the Normans were more than familiar, which meant that the English were at a disadvantage both in the field and within any fortifications. Their best hope had been the Danes and their ships, but that was all gone now, as were their allies in the south and their allies in the west. This rebellion was collapsing, and now that they were denied a comparable field army, their best option was to return to asymmetrical guerrilla warfare. So once again, the rebels dispersed into the woods and wild places of the north and returned to the tactics of the Silvatici. It was an obvious and logical decision, and it was well in line with the northern way of war. Ambushes, surprise attacks, and hidden run strikes were common occurrences in northern history, and they weren't seen as dishonorable or inappropriate. But the Normans saw it very differently. Apparently, it was one thing to do a hit-and-run strike while riding a horse, but it was quite another thing if you were doing it while hiding in the woods on foot. That distinction, the lack of a horse, made it downright despicable. And so this retreat into the woods and the use of guerrilla tactics were seen as yet another example of how the North was full of treacherous, worthless people. And now that William didn't have to keep the Danes boxed in at the Humber, he was able to use his full army. And he decided that he wouldn't wait until the campaigning season. He and his men had been ravaging England for the entire breadth of this campaign, regardless of the weather. So they weren't going to stop now. And if people thought that Christmas would encourage William and his knights to ease up, they probably should have taken note of how the Normans celebrated William's Christmas coronation in London. Far from mercy the Normans were drawing up a plan to escalate their violence because the bastard had come to a conclusion regarding the North. So long as there were rebels in Northumbria, his grip on the throne would never be secure. And the only way to rid the North of rebels was to rid the North of Northerners. He set about a policy that, if it was enacted today, would be described as genocide. But in the 11th century they gave it a euphemistic description. Harrying. As if this was just a raid. But it wasn't a raid. When William and his army marched out of York 
after their Christmas celebration. What they were about to engage in was an extermination. Having wasted the towns and villages throughout Yorkshire, the bastard and his army mounted up and headed into the wild places. And remember, not everyone in the woods would have been a rebel at this point. Given what the knights had been doing to the villages, many of the survivors would have made the only sane choice in that situation and fled into the woods and hidden places. Which means that while Orderick describes William and his knights as hunting rebels, most of these victims were likely refugees. But William didn't care. The record is surprisingly clear on that, stating, quote, He yielded to his worst impulse and set no bounds to his fury, condemning the innocent and the guilty to a common fate, end quote. Nowhere was safe. The Northumbrians, knowing these lands better than the Normans, did their best to evade him. And Orderic describes one instance where William and his army pushed into an isolated stretch of land that could only be reached by a narrow causeway, possibly Holderness, only to find that it had been evacuated by the time they got through. But neither weather nor bad terrain deterred these attacks. Complete destruction and murder was the entire point. And so William was, quote, forcing his way through trackless wastes, over ground so rough that he was frequently compelled to go on foot, end quote, in search of slaughter. And while some did manage to escape, many did not. Nor did their homes, farms, and livestock. In his campaign, William burned homes along with all their possessions. He ruined fields. He destroyed tools, he killed livestock, he destroyed everything, along with every living person he encountered. Here is Orderic, who, again, was pulling from a now-lost portion of Poitiers. And if we are, in fact, reading the words of Poitiers here, this might explain why this section was mysteriously removed, and why Poitiers decided to end his manuscript so soon after recounting this event. Quote, his camps were scattered over a surface of 100 miles. Numbers of the insurgents fell beneath his vengeful sword. He leveled their places of shelter to the ground, wasted their lands, and burnt their dwellings with all they contained. Never did William commit so much cruelty to his lasting disgrace. He yielded to his worst impulse and set no bounds to his fury, condemning the innocent and the guilty to a common fate. In the fullness of his wrath, he ordered the corn and cattle with the implements of husbandry and every sort of provisions to be collected in heaps and set on fire till the whole was consumed, and thus destroyed at once all that could serve for the support of life in the whole country beyond the Humber. End quote. What he's describing here is the complete destruction of every living thing throughout the about 100-mile stretch between York and Durham. We're told that absolutely nothing was left that could provide life. And this dismantling of all life went on for ages. Destruction on this scale isn't easy, nor is it quick. To carry out his plan, William had to break his forces into groups, and slowly, methodically, systematically 
destroy everything. We're talking about months and months of killing. And in doing so, William inflicted a permanent wound on the North. Hugh the Chanter, visiting York years later, wrote of how the city and the whole district around it was, quote, destroyed by the French with the sword, famine, and flames, end quote. Adding that there was nothing that remained in York but, quote, a burnt city and a ruined church, end quote. And that was years after the Herring of the North. The Historia Regum tells us that the killing was so complete that the bodies of the murdered were left out in the open, not out of disinterest by their neighbors, but because there was no one left alive to bury them. And it goes on to speak of how, quote, there was no village inhabited between York and Durham, end quote, and that the fields and villages remained empty even nine years later. William and the Normans committed murder on a scale that is difficult to even imagine. And the destruction of those communities had knock-on effects that stretched into the future, farther into the future than we might like to think about. The fact is, when a region is devastated like this, it is killing more than the innocent. A massacre like this kills more than people. It kills culture. It kills identity. It kills history. York was the intellectual home of England. It had been home to some of the kingdom's greatest thinkers. More than that, it was a wealthy, influential, and politically connected region. And then William happened. Seventeen years after the harrying of the North, when the Normans carried out an update to their doomsday book, Yorkshire was still recorded as wasteland. 60% of the communities in Yorkshire were listed as Wasta in 1086. 66% of the manors were Wasta. And the recorded population was reduced by 75%. And remember, that's about 17 years after this event. Which means that this was long after people would have had the opportunity to move back or just to move in and take possession of land that was now abandoned because the people who held it were murdered. William had struck Northumbria right through the heart. And a wound like that goes on for far more than 17 years. The thing about destruction on a scale like this is that even when communities and societies rebuild, they do so at a disadvantage. The loss of political and economic power becomes a static momentum. And other communities, communities that didn't suffer the same losses, continue building upon their wealth and station, all while Yorkshire was just struggling to become habitable again. This is where atrocities become inequalities, and then inequalities become structural disadvantages. The people living in rich areas often have more political influence than those who are in poor areas. And so they are more likely to get favorable governmental policies. And so if a government has money to spend, it tends to give it to those who have the power to ask for it. And if money needs to be cut, well, it tends to be taken from those who can't do much about it. It's much easier to apply unpopular governance to politically weak communities 
than to politically strong ones. And so, while there are many reasons for wealth disparities, the fact is that after William, the North became poorer than the South. And it remains so. That damage has been passed down for a thousand years. William was destroying the present and the future. And in the face of this campaign of terror, what could the English refugees who were fleeing from their homes and their forest camps do? Well, they'd have to look to their own leaders for a plan. And it turned out that the local leadership, who had been so eager to take control of this grassroots rebellion when it was winning, did have a plan in place for what to do if it started losing. Edgar the Atheling, the man who had marched into York and claimed the mantle of king, marched his butt straight over to Wearmouth, where he was waiting for a ship that would carry him to Scotland, and, hopefully, to the protection of King Malcolm III. Again. But, to be fair, Edgar never was a war leader, or much of a leader at all. So what about the other more experienced nobles who knew how to handle themselves in a fight and who also took leadership roles? What about Marilla Swain or Alfwyn or the wealthy and powerful Seward Barn? What were they doing? Well, it turns out they were also at Wearmouth waiting for that ship to Scotland, all while the Normans were killing their way through the countryside. Cool. But... What about the religious leadership in Durham? Because in times like this, surely the men of God would come through, right? Especially since we are in a period where men of God had literal armies. So what were the men of the cloth doing? Well, here's the thing about that. According to Simeon of Durham, William's rage was completely unbounded and he was engaging in atrocities. No, he wasn't talking about the genocide. Simeon, at this point was talking about how William had ordered that all the monasteries of England be searched and looted. And it turns out that Simeon wasn't the only person who was upset by this. Do you remember Bishop Athelwina of Durham? The guy who tried to convince Robert de Comine to go home, because it seemed like Durham was a little bit too rebellious for a Norman knight to roll in. But the Norman commander refused to listen, and that's how he became Bobby Barbecue. Well... I guess William didn't care all that much that Athelwina had tried to help out the Normans in the past, because he was still planning on looting and pillaging his monastery. And Athelwina wasn't all that keen on learning French, nor was he happy about the king's sudden imposition of a vow of poverty against him. So, the bishop grabbed as much treasure as he could, resigned his post as bishop, and trotted up to Wearmouth to find a ship out of town. That harbor of Wearmouth was quite the chic spot for the powerful of England to visit, you know, along with cartloads of possessions. And as they tried to get out of the north, some distance away, their subjects and their flocks were getting butchered by the very man that they had sworn to protect them from. And remember, William's destruction of the north took a long time. In fact, while Simeon tells us that all these figures were waiting in Wearmouth for a ship, we also know that they didn't get one right away, probably due to the weather. But we're told that they had to sit there at least through the spring. 
all while William and his men continued their campaign of extermination. I suppose the nobles in Wearmouth were just hoping that he wouldn't make it that far before they got onto a boat. But not everyone was content to flee to Wearmouth and seek a ship. Earl Gospatrick, the descendant of Uhtred the Bold and King Athelred of England, and likely relative of King Malcolm III through Crinan, wasn't planning on leaving England. I mean, he was a dynastic powerhouse and was one of the main figures that had organized the noble involvement in this rebellion. Gospatrick was a man of action, and so he took action. He sent a messenger to William and promised his submission to the conqueror. And as for Earl Waltheof, the famed commander who had served an entire division of Norman knights of Flambe and was recorded dicing Normans at York like a top sushi chef, well, he went one step farther. He traveled down to York personally, likely passing through the smoking, burned-out wasteland that was once Northumbria. And there, before the man who had brought all this devastation, Waltheof offered his submission in person. But as nice as all these little oaths of fealty were, William wasn't about to change course. He continued killing his way through the region, with some reports claiming he went as far north as Hexham. This campaign of slaughter was so vicious that it broke the sensibilities even of the time, and even contemporary writers condemned him for it. Florence of Worcester wrote of how William and his men spent the winter, quote, laying waste the country, slaughtering the inhabitants, and inflicting every sort of evil without cessation, end quote. And Orderic, who you'll recall was pulling from a lost portion of the bastard's hype man, Poitiers, said that William killed more than 100,000 people in his campaign, that he killed the innocent and the guilty alike, that he destroyed all the homes, all the crops, all the food, all the herds, even all the tools, everything. And he adds, quote, I've often praised William in this book, but I can say nothing good of this brutal slaughter. God will punish him, end quote. And for good reason, Simeon of Durham didn't just inform us of the travel habits of the nobility during this period. He also tells us precisely how bad William's scorched earth policy was. By destroying all the land between York and Durham, William was annihilating a huge chunk of arable land for England. And while the Normans weren't going to be missing any meals anytime soon, that wasn't the case for the English. Simeon, relating what he learned from John of Worcester, tells us that after this attack, quote, so severe a famine prevailed in most parts of the kingdom, but chiefly Northumbria and the adjacent provinces, that men were driven to feed on the flesh of horses, dogs, cats, and even of human beings. Others sold themselves to perpetual slavery so that they might in any way preserve their wretched existence, end quote. One strange experience that happens when you read about William the Conqueror is that you will inevitably still find plenty of authors that portray him as a heroic figure. They seem to want to believe this so badly that they even add on accomplishments. Some of them you may have heard of before. One of these add-ons is that William ended slavery in England. And first of all, 
slavery had been slowly falling out of practice in England since the time of Canute. But second, where do all the people selling themselves into slavery in order to avoid watching their families starve to death as a direct result of William's harrying fit into that account? And of course, these same authors also forget to include the record of people resorting to cannibalism as a result of William's actions. But it's right there in black and white. You can even see its impacts in documents that were commissioned by William himself. The harrying was a real thing he did, and its effects are well documented. And can you imagine the horror of this period? And you might think that with all this killing and the subsequent starvation and slavery and cannibalism would be a bridge too far for the Pope. That upon realizing what he had unleashed by elevating William, Pope Alexander II would right this wrong and excommunicate him. But you'd be wrong. No, for the most part, as far as the church was concerned, this had been working out pretty well. William had restored the direct payment of money to the papacy, which was known as Peter's Pence, because it had lapsed during the reign of Edward the Confessor, and they weren't happy about that. He'd also placed continental figures in charge of English religious houses, which the Pope also approved of. All in all, the Vatican was happy with William's reign. Though Pope Alexander II did have one thing he was a bit concerned about. And no, not the cannibalism. Now, the Pope was worried that the See of Canterbury was held by that Englishman, Archbishop Stigand, and that simply would not do. So, as William was exterminating the North, the Pope was preparing a legate to deal with the far more pressing issue of staffing. Though I do wonder if, in France, the newly ordained prior of Cluny Abbey, Odo, was getting updates on William's adventures through England. And if he was, I wonder if he was thinking that while supporting conquest was still a good way for the church to gain power, maybe next time they shouldn't point this degree of violence at fellow Christians. Because in less than two decades, Odo will become Pope Urban II, and he will build upon what happened to England, and he will repoint all that avarice and violence eastward across the Mediterranean, and he'll launch the era of the Crusades. Thanks for listening.